$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so excited to have my next guest here. He's uh, kind of a movie star. No, not really, but uh, a celebrity, but not really, as as he and I were just uh, chatting about. But we have Hank Rogers, who is who is from Tetris. Uh, you may know him from that, but also is the founder of an incredible, incredible initiative called Blue Planet Alliance. And you need to know about this and what he is doing. But he's also a co-founder of uh, the incredible company Blue Planet Software. And we're going to talk about how how all of this connects to uh, Hank's journey overall. But he has consistently shown his unwavering commitment to creating positive change and has harnessed his reach and influence to advocate for environmental uh, sustainability, his mission to revolutionize how we generate, store, and use power is reshaping the landscape of renewable energy overall. And as I mentioned, uh, that little company, Tetris, that is a hot, hot, hot story uh, lately, especially since it's uh, come on Apple TV Plus exclusive, definitely has uh, brought Tetris into the limelight once again. So we're going to get to hear a little bit more about that. There'll be, uh, this is going to be an amazing, amazing discussion. So Hank, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, very excited to have have you here. So before we get into all of the amazing work you're doing uh, with the foundation and the Alliance, uh, can we go back to the early days of, Tetris, and how did you first come across this game, and uh, what drew you to its potential? Yeah, so my background is I'm a com- computer game designer, and uh, I wrote the first role-playing game in Japan and ended up with a publishing company. So, you know, I wrote two games for the uh, for the company, for my own company, and then I started traveling around the world looking for games to bring to Japan. 
And, uh, you know, I always had a, had a rule uh, that I would never have anything to do with the game that I didn't want my children to play. You know, this is a kind of, uh, how can I say, this is a kind of rule of thumb that everybody in the business should have because there are so many uh, instances where people are creating games that are just horrible. And uh, Tetris is an example of a, of a game that, was, that people love to play, that everybody loved to play. Um, I found it at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas in 1988. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I thought this is a great game because I was hooked on it at, at right there at the show when I brought samples back to Japan, all my people in, in the office got in, you know, got hooked on it. And so I went after all the rights. Um, so that's why, uh, you know, I ended up going to the Soviet union in 1989 to get the Game Boy rights and, uh, met the author of Tetris, who's a Russian guy. And he is my partner till today. That's wild. So you were the co-founder of Blue Planet Software, I guess, at that point. Uh, and you, I'd, I'd love to hear that story. So the, the one about going into the Soviet Union in the 1980s, I can only imagine, and negotiating the rights. I mean, what challenges if you can even name the many or even one of um, them? No. I mean, it was, I can only imagine. I, I was totally breaking the law by going to the Soviet Union and talking to uh, people, uh, or and especially people in some kind of a an official government organization. Mm -hmm. uh, I had no right to do any of that uh, on a tourist visa, so uh, that's the start of it. And it was it was right at the uh, beginning of of Glasnost and Perestroika, so other people were taking chances at that point in time. I mean, you can imagine what it'd be like if I went to North Korea today and tried to find a, a ministry and as walk in the door unannounced, uninvited, and and try to do some kind of business. Oh my God, I would be on a, <laughs> I would be on the list of people that the U.S. is trying to get back from. Right, <laughs> from, we may not hear from, from you again. Exactly. Yeah. That's crazy. So what was probably in your memory thinking back on that day? Uh, you know, what was, why did you do it? I mean, it's, it's like scary. It's risky. I mean, what, what made you kind of think this is, this is what I've got to do and I've got to stay here in order to do it. I would say there's a, there's a good dollop of naivety involved <laughs> at that point in time. If I really knew how much trouble I could get into, then I, I, I might have thought twice about going. Um, but, I, you know, I, I'm a very, how can I say, confident guy. So I, I was confident that I was going to be able to talk my way out of it uh, if I got, got into some kind of trouble. Um, and obviously, I managed to do that. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, you know, I'm very open and honest. And uh, me, I was a breath of fresh air for, for the people that I was dealing with because you know, their, their experience with Westerners had been people that have come and took advantage of them because, well, the Soviet Union didn't have intellectual property laws, so they, they didn't really know what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I helped them understand how it all works, how the business works, and I gave them a fair share of the money. That's so interesting. I, I never knew that story of Tetris, and obviously the movie came out and uh, and lots of articles around it. I think that every entrepreneur has those stories that don't get 
to be told on a regular basis, right? People just see the end product or service, but they don't actually know the stories that come up along the way. So I loved hearing it. It just makes, it it made me love the brand even more uh, just from hearing that story. But how do you explain its timeless appeal? I mean, you're talking about the 80s, right? I mean, this is a game in in a time when, you know, lots of games have come out since Tetris, but people are still very interested in playing the game. It's still successful. So what do you think is sort of the, why is it still so popular? Yeah, so so the, I think that the the basic, the core appeal of the game is order out of chaos. If you just let the pieces fall and you don't really do a good job, then you end up with chaos. But if you move the things the way they're supposed to, then you create these little lines. And it's kind of like, I don't know, like creating lines of DNA or something. Life, lo- that's what life does. It creates order out of chaos. The order is DNA. The chaos is all the amino acids that float around our body. And somehow we arrange them into sequences that actually make sense. And Tetris does that. Um, there's no, nobody gets hurt in Tetris. It's, mm-hmm. it's just a constructive game. Um, so I think that that is a, um, a very basic uh, emotion uh, in people is that they like to create order out of chaos. So interesting. So I've had many entrepreneurs on here. Uh, I had Mitch Kapoor uh, t- on not too long ago talking about uh, Lotus. And I'm so curious, is there anything that you would have done differently looking back on your your time uh, building Tetris? Is there anything that like you feel like there was this window and we were we decided to go right, maybe we should have gone left. Well, not so much in, in, in Tetris, uh, but in business in general. Um, you know, I had my publishing company in Japan and Electronic Arts uh, came twice uh, to try to buy my company. And twice I said no, and twice I should have said yes. I could have had a significant amount of money uh, much earlier in my career. Uh, as it is, I, I held on to it. I was going to build it myself and make it more val- valuable myself, and um, that just didn't turn in. Uh, that didn't turn out. Uh, I didn't become a public company because I didn't really understand how to be a public company, especially in Japan, since I didn't read or mm-hmm. write Japanese. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, I, I had my chance to to make a bunch of money early on, and I uh, I passed those chances. And so, when I finally made my own company, that was one hundred percent me uh, in the U S, uh, to make games for mobile phones. Uh, I made up my mind from the get go. If somebody offers me significant money, I'm going to say yes. (laughs) And I did. Yeah. But I think it's, it's hard when you're faced with that, because I think it's also oftentimes you're, when you get those phone calls, you are, uh, you know, it's when you're on a high, right. With the company and things are going great. People don't start calling when, you know, it's a disaster, right? <laughs> and so you're, yeah, it's hard. It's a, if it's a disaster, you can't give away the company. Right, you know? right. <laughs> if you want to rise, then, then everybody wants to be a piece of the action. So, right. Yeah, and sell, sell your company on the way up, not on the way down. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's a valuable, valuable lesson for sure. So take me on this journey then. You're, 
you've built an incredible legacy uh, with with Tetris, and um, you are doing just fine. You have a great place in Kona. Um, something happens in your life where you just decide that you're going to focus on other things. Can you take us through that moment? Sure, sure. It's 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 uh, it's before I had my place in Kona, but here's what happened. I um, it's a month after I sold my company for well more money than I uh, than I ever would need. You know, and it means I I never have to work again. Um, and it's a month after, and I find myself in the back of an ambulance with a heart attack. And first thing, I, you know, I was being taken for observation, so it wasn't supposed to be so bad. But halfway to the hospital, the siren went on. So I, then I knew uh, something was happening. And, uh, uh, you know, my doctor later said, yeah, that was, you know, getting into that ambulance was the best decision you ever made. <laughs> because if I, if you'd have been more than seven minutes away, I wouldn't have been able to save you. Anyway, I'm looking at the, at the uh, ceiling in the ambulance and I'm, uh, I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I haven't spent any of the money yet. <laughs> After I did all that work, uh, that was the first thing. But the second thing I said, no, I'm not going. I still have stuff to do. And in the uh, recovery room, I got to thinking, what did I mean by that? That was obviously a near-death experience. And I said something that was really important. So I worked it backwards from the end of my life. What What is it that's going to upset me if I didn't do something about it by the end of my life? And I came up with my bucket list. You know, I spend the next two two weeks uh, figuring out my missions in life, and I'm on those missions today. And the first mission came to me. It was in the back of the newspaper. This is in Hawaii, the back of the newspaper now. And the article goes, oh, by the way, we're going to kill all the coral in the world by the end of the century. And I'm like, that's insane. What's causing that? And that's ocean acidification. What's causing that? It's carbon dioxide going into the ocean. What's causing that? We are. We're the cause of all this carbon dioxide that's like going into nature and wreaking havoc on the climate. So my mission number one is to end the use of carbon-based fuel. And that's all of, well, it's put a sort of 90% of what I'm up to these days. So carbon-based fuel, for those who are not familiar with it, how do you define that? Yeah, uh, carbon-based fuel, first of all, there's fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. So nature has sequestered carbon over millions of years. So 60 million uh, years of carboniferous forest is buried, and that is where we get all of our coal. So we're doing our best to take that 60 million years of buried carbon and sending it into the atmosphere. The same thing, similar thing with oil. Uh, and and gas. So all those fossil fuels are are carbon that nature has sequestered by burying it, and we're taking it out of the ground and turning it into the atmosphere, like f in geologic terms, all at once. Hmm. And it's the reason that temperatures are going uh, so high so fast. Now it may not seem fast to us humans because we don't live for very very long, but in in the scope of things, it is going really fast. We're going to end up having a serious amount of sea level rise, uh, forest fires, deluges, droughts, all of those things. That's all going to happen because we're creating all this extreme weather. Um, and we got to do something about it. Now, the other um, carbon-based fuel is living carbon, meaning plants. And there are some people that still like to use 
like to talk about using, I don't know, corn to make ethanol or, uh, or, or whatever, something. But th- this, is, this is living stuff. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, that's carbon neutral because when we burn it, we grow new stuff and it absorbs the carbon again. We are not in a position to be neutral. We have to be carbon negative now. Mm-hmm. And so if nature wants to grow stuff somewhere, that should be a one-way thing and, and nature should then bury that and turn it into soil. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the first step in sequest- uh, sequestration. Uh, so we shouldn't be taking any, anything that even resembles food and using it for fuel because there's so many other ways to make fuel. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. So you s- launched the Blue Planet Foundation, or Blue Planet Alliance, actually. Uh, A Blue Planet Foundation came first. Okay, so Blue Planet Foundation led efforts to pass the U.S.'s first 100% renewable energy law. Terrific. I mean, amazing on many fronts. I'm sure that wasn't easy. Uh, but tell me what you... What did you set out to do and what did you actually do? So what I set out to do was uh, to end the use of carbon-based fuel in Hawaii. And what actually happened, is, first of all, we, we have a deadline of 2045. Uh, and so everybody you know who's in the movement of trying to uh, fix climate change says, 2045, that's too far in the future. It should be much sooner. But, you know, we struggled to get 20 to 2045. The politicians were ready to give us 2050 and we wanted 2040 and we settled for 2045. But what's in fact happened is our goal in, in all of that was to reach 40% renewable energy by 2030. <laughs> we have already reached 40% renewable energy in Hawaii. So things are moving much faster than anybody thought they would. I mean, the government, utility, everybody. Um, the reason that it's moving so fast is we changed the business model of the utility so they can make more money by switching to renewables. Okay, if they can make more money, now their shareholders and their management, and everybody gets on the side of, yeah, let's do this faster. And so uh, this is what we need to, do, need to do in the rest of the world. Everybody needs to make the decision to go 100%, I like the date 2045 because it's the 100th anniversary of the United Nations. That's a great date for us to, to fix everything. Uh, 100%, we should fix everything by 2045 because we, we are now in the sustainable development goals. And that's nice, but we're not in a position to be sustainable right now. Mm-hmm. We have to fix everything that we've broken. We have to put back everything that we've stolen from nature uh, we have to fix the planet, then we can become uh, sustainable. So I'd like the next 15 years, the first 15 years, the SDGs are 2015 to 2030. I'd like the next 15 years from 2030 to 2045 to be the regenerative development goals. It's where we fix everything. And uh, when we fix everything, then we get control of sea level rise. We get uh, control of the climate. And basically, we, we give back nature we build back the forests. Uh, yeah, we regenerate. Nature can regenerate. We just have to get out of the way. Yeah. It, it seems like, it, I mean, I bet the challenge is really education, right? That this is just, people think I'm not going to be able to actually make a difference. And I, and I think that then they just give up and they don't do what they should be doing. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that. 
Right. So that was the situation that we were in, uh, you know, with Blue Planet uh, Foundation. And we were trying to figure out how can we get a message uh, to, you know, a vast number of people uh, about electricity and about climate change. So we had uh, elementary school children go door to door and exchange 300,000 light bulbs. In so doing, they would have a conversation with the people in the house, the adults in the house. This light bulb will cost you only 10% uh, of what your incandescent light bulb is costing you in terms of electricity and therefore money. And also, if we reduce, if everybody reduces their, their consumption of electricity, that will decrease the amount of carbon dioxide and it will help solve the climate change problem. So even though you may think this is a small thing, but uh, having this conversation uh, this this is the conversation that everybody needs to have. I was recently in Korea, and the politician asked me, "So, what should what kind of policies should I be working on in Korea?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, this is what you need to do. You need to tell your children the truth about climate change, and then ask them what to do, because they're not." tied to any vested interest. They don't need to get reelected. They don't, ha- they don't have a job. They just clearly can say, this is what you should do. And that is, in fact, what we need to do. Yeah. We just don't listen. Yeah. Or we grab on to, you know, one piece, uh, one soundbite and think that, you know, it's all this, this whole carbon neutral, right? It's actually, to your point, we need to get carbon negative because we've made too many mistakes. And I think I couldn't agree more. So you've, you've launched and scaled multiple companies. You obviously have an entrepreneurial energy to you. And I feel like there are so many entrepreneurs out there that could actually create impact and would like to create impact. What do you think is like the first step for people thinking, wow, this is really cool what Hank is doing. I mean, what do you think people should do? Like if it, is it along the lines of if you see something, say something, or I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm so curious. I feel like so many people are just lazy and they just don't do it. Okay, don't, don't, don't be so negative on people. Well, first of all, uh, if, if, uh, if you're an entrepreneur, you are making impact, whether mm-hmm. you like it or not. Totally. Um, I, I challenge you to think whether that impact is positive or negative. And if it's a negative impact, then I challenge you to figure out how to make that negative impact into a positive one. Because in the future, uh, young people that are growing up today, they are not going to put up with negative impact businesses. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that we're working on in the, uh, uh, in the alliance is to make... Uh, the invisible visible to to actually show uh, the impact that each company has on the future of humanity and uh, and nature. It's a rating system. You know, normally you see five stars. Five stars tells you how good something is, some, whether it made somebody happy. But that doesn't tell you whether it's good for the future of humanity or nature. Uh, we need to actually look through a company and look at their entire supply chain and how they make stuff and what happens to their stuff that they make after at the end of life. We need the whole, the whole cycle. And then we decide, uh, based on those numbers, we give them, uh, 
up to five planets. A perfect company would be five planets, completely circular economy uh, company. So companies will have to uh, compete to see who can become the most eco-friendly in the future, or they will have to get out of the business, out of that business. And uh, transparency is the way to go. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Recently, Europe passed a law, which is amazing, against greenwashing. Hmm. A, A law against greenwashing. What it means is that a company cannot say about their their own stuff. Look at what we're doing. It's so great. And we're so green, da, 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 because that's greenwashing because that it's a PR department picking things that the company is doing and hiding the, the bad things the company is doing. And so, and now it has to be done by independent uh, uh, companies to who will judge what a co- whether a company actually is green or not. So and uh, so I think that's coming down the pike. And everybody that's in the business should understand that they're going to be scrutinized by their entire uh, business from the from supply chain to um, the landfill. Mm-hmm. No, that's so, so interesting. So it'll be interesting to see if they pass that law in the U.S. because I think it'll be, uh, gosh, a lot of work, <laughs> right, to look at companies because it's it's. Uh, you know, in every industry, I, I see things that I could poke holes in. It's so simple. I mean, like, the, you know, the, so the oil company can't talk about how, how you know, great they are and how they're doing this, like, couple of solar projects anymore. They can't say that. Yeah. It's, because it's, it's totally misleading people. You know, um, the plastic industry went through a huge campaign to make people think that plastic is okay when it's terrible. And the way they make people think it's okay is by making people think that plastic is recyclable. And then all people need to do is to bring it to a recycling station and get, get it recycled. The fact is less than 5% of, of plastic gets recycled. And the rest of it ends up in landfill or in the ocean. And, and, and it's really nasty stuff when it breaks down into microplastic and is ingested by things that we eat. So plastic is, is, I mean, it's a horrible stuff. And, and, and it, now we look at it and when we buy something in the store, we think, oh, it's okay. It's in a, we can recycle this container. No, we can't. Well, in it, general, I mean, we could talk about plastics for, for, I've done a lot of research on that, but I think that the, one of the key things that you touched on around, um, uh, that happens in the plastics industry is that we allow different things to go into plastic so that it can't be recycled. So things like, you know, corn and bamboo and things like that, if it's mixed in, but it looks like a plastic bottle, you can't put it into the recycling center. So that really ends up to be a huge mess. Um, So it's, uh, and, and we also don't have regulations around turning it into like t-shirts and bags and things like that, that it could. And so I think that there's a there's a big challenge there as well with the recycling industry that you know is uh is not really doing what they should be doing either. Yeah, probably turning plastic into microfibers is uh is a way to get it to become micro <laughs> microplastic in the ocean much quicker. Uh so I I I don't I don't know if if we if we turn it into concrete and sort of like, you know, 
put it in a place where it can't move anymore, that would be that might be good. I don't know. I don't. Uh, yeah, or decks or. Yeah, no, uh, sure, of course. Um, I, I just think that we should find alternatives to plastic, and we should out outlaw single-use plastic. Yeah, definitely outlaw single-use plastic for sure. So uh, I'd love to hear kind of best advice. Uh, you've obviously grown things in the nonprofit sector as well as, uh, you know, the the uh, profitable sector. I'd love to share any advice you have in sort of not just starting a company, but also scaling a company, knowing what you know today, having worked in different industries, any big advice that you have uh, for founders out there who are thinking, okay, this is what Hank has told me, and he he knows what he's talking about because he's done it in a, a lot of different industries. Well, first of all, you know whatever you're getting into, you know, pick something that you're passionate about. Um, you know, because it's your passion that's going to carry you through to the end. Uh, you know, I've had a business, I've had several business where. I started with great intentions and then I lost interest. That's because I couldn't maintain my passion mm -hmm. uh, about whatever it is. So um, the other thing I would say is um, get good people around you and delegate, trust them. Uh, this is the other thing that, um, you know, the business should run in a way that if you can walk away and it's still working, uh, I'm fairly sure that you have a, a good experience with that. Um, but, you know, for me, I would say, I guess a lot of my drive comes from being a gamer and I hate to lose. And so what drives me is, is wanting to win in, in this game, uh, especially when I have competition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I just, I just hate losing. And so that, that, that drives me a lot. I think nobody likes losing. Everybody likes winning. So, you know, let that be a driver. Uh, and, and, don't give up. You know, when things look really nasty, your job as a CEO or a founder of a company is to figure out a way to get through that. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I, I'll give you a short example. When I first released my game, my, my role-playing game in Japan, um, SoftBank had offered to, to buy 3,000 copies, but nobody understood what a role-playing game was. So they, they reduced their order down to 600, which really wasn't enough for me to last the company last for a couple of months and uh nobody knew what a role-playing game was and uh so what can we do so i i gathered the troops and i said you know how do people in japan find out about computer games and they said well they find out about them in magazines I said, well how do you get into the magazine I said, well you have a hit and then the magazine comes and interviews you and well this is obviously not happening here mm -hmm. so what can we do differently that is going to make that happen uh, so I decided that I was going to go to every magazine uh, uh, and show them how to play a role-playing game. And I did. And, uh, you know, um, a month later, we had rave reviews in every magazine. And then the month after that, we had an order for 10,000 units. Wow. And it, it went for the rest of the year, 10,000 units a month for the rest of the year. We were the number one game in Japan in 1984. And, you know, I could have sat there in January and said, oh, there's no way that we're, you know, we failed. Japanese people obviously don't like role-playing games. Well, today, 40, it's about 30 to 40% of all games made in Japan are role-playing games. Hmm. So there you go. You just have to persevere. And if it's your business, you may end up having to do some major pivots 
and do some things very differently from the way you originally thought they were going to work out. And that is your job. You're the, you're the creator of the business and you have to be creative to make sure that that business thrives. Yeah, it's so interesting. Well, it seems like also you're talking about a few other things too. The great businesses don't happen overnight, right? It, it always takes longer um, and, uh, and plans also usually take longer as, as well. And uh, to really, you, you have to take the long vision for it. So I'll, I'll mention something that I, you know, one of my sound bites for my nonprofit. Uh, people ask me if I have hope. And hope kind of relates to somebody who's going to help you and help you figure mm -hmm. it out, something like that. And the answer is, no, I don't have hope. I have determination. Because determination is what's going to get you through. Whatever it is that you're facing, it's determination. Hope isn't going to help you. Nobody's going to come and save you. It's you who have to swim not somebody else. And that's all about running a business and it's about achieving your missions in life, your missions in your business. It's all determination. Yeah. Somebody said to me, uh, who was actually a guest on the show, Chris Voss, he said, uh, hope is not a strategy. Uh, so, which I thought was, uh, was brilliant, right? It, it's true. You know, it's nobody's coming and you've got to have that determination to your point. So, well, thank you so much, Hank. This has been so incredible to hear all about your journey and your experience and your why, and obviously about Blue Planet Alliance, uh, too, and all the good stuff. So we'll have everything in the show notes, too, but really incredible and appreciate you coming on and sharing a lot more with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to The Kara Golden Show. If you would, please give us a review and feel free to share this podcast with others who would benefit. And of course, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of our podcast. Just a reminder that I can be found on all platforms at Kara Golden. And if you want to hear more about my journey, I hope you will have a listen or pick up a copy of my book, Undaunted, which I share my journey including founding and building Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And thanks everyone for listening. Have a great rest of the week and 2023 and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head-on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Thanks for listening.
Mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.